Now on view at SCAD Fash, Manish Aurora's Life is Beautiful. Renowned for dazzling designs and a rainbow of colors, Manish Aurora has brought the talent and craftsmanship of India's rich sartorial history to the global forefront, earning international acclaim on runways across three continents. Designing in India since the 1990s, Aurora's glittering garments celebrate extravagant expressions of self through varied materials, techniques, and silhouettes in a triumphant union of Western and Eastern aesthetics adapted to today's multicultural society with a touch of humor. Find out more at scadfash.org. Support for WABE comes from 100 Miles, a nonprofit committed to preserving Georgia's 100-mile coast. Protecting this critical coastal ecosystem takes all of us. Watch the stories of the innovators and future leaders who help keep our coast flowing at OurGeorgiaCoast.org. WABE in Atlanta, this is City Lights. I'm Kim Drobes, in for Lois Reitzes. Thank you for listening. When artist Charles Clary needed to make the tough choice between his love of visual art and his love of percussion work, his path led him to create an artistic process that allowed him to combine his passions. Clary is one of the featured artists in the new Woodstock Arts exhibition, Paper Cuts. And coming up, Clary will detail his work and visual arts director Nicole Lample will share more about the group exhibition. But first, the Silver Scream Spook Show at the Historic Plaza Movie Theater is a live stage show filled with magic tricks, dancing girls, jokes, frights, and fun. Think of it as a tribute to classic TV horror hosts like Elvira, Svengooli, and Vampira. Following the 30 minutes of stage hijinks, the Spook Show then screens a classic horror film, and this Saturday, October 1st, they'll be featuring the 1959 cult hit, William Castle's The Tingler. There's a kid-friendly matinee at 1.30 p.m., and then the not-to-be-missed late show starts at 10 p.m. Madeline Brumby and Shane Morden are the creatives behind the Silver Scream Spook Show, and they join me now via Zoom. Madeline and Shane, welcome to City Lights. Hello. Thank you for having us. So happy to be Mm -hmm. here. Happy to have you both here. So Shane, for the unfamiliar, can you give us a historical summary of live spook shows and TV horror hosts? I can take this thing further back. And it was funny. I just had this conversation two weeks ago. This professor stopped me at a gas station. He saw the spook mobile and he was like, I am a professor at Emory and I specialize in screams. And I wanted to talk to you about this van. I was telling him, well, anthropologically speaking, spook shows may be the oldest form of entertainment that we know of. So just bear with me for a minute because this sounds really way out. But what we know of is the first form of entertainment were the cave paintings. And what we think happened with these cave paintings is some leader of the group, a shamanistic person would come in, most likely wearing makeup, and they would airbrush paintings on the cave walls and tell stories of, a lot of the time, these stories were about humans transforming into animals. So literally, it was kind of like the first spook show. And it hasn't really changed a whole lot. We still tell stories about werewolves and we still airbrush our props and we have ghosts materialize in front of the audiences. 
but I can argue that the spook show has been going on for, you know, a hundred thousand years, maybe. How did the Emory professor take that? He thought that it was really interesting and so much so that he wanted to have me be a guest speaker at the school. I've done some, <laughs> no, it sounds silly, but he, he said that I was right. This kind of stuff happens to shit yeah. all the time. <laughs> the truth is that these things did happen as far as we know it, scientifically speaking. All right. So we have a history of sharing scary stories as entertainment, putting on makeup, but I feel like I buried the lead, Shane. Can you share your personal history with special effects and horror? Okay. Well, the spook show is sort of like the ultimate culmination of all the things that I've done creatively in my life's work. So I'm an artist. I was a musician that played heavy metal, punk rock music all over the world for decades. And I also have been a successful special effects artist in film and television for years. And ever since I was a kid, I wanted to be both of these things. I kind of wanted to be like, I wanted to grow up to be Alice Cooper and Houdini and Ray Harryhausen, like all rolled up into one. And I'm not claiming to be anywhere close to any of those geniuses, but uh, I kind of have become this weird amalgamation with this creation of Professor Morte of all those things. So which came first, Professor Morte or the Silver Scream spook show? Professor Morte came first. He was a character that I would actually play for fun at horror conventions and I would dress up as him when my band played. We would do spook shows with the band on Halloween and, and do like these classic things. Kind of like Alice Cooper and Kiss have utilized a lot of these old spook show tricks into their live shows because these things have been going on. You know, I, I know that was kind of silly about the cave paintings and all that stuff, but like in entertainment, you know, the Pepper's Ghost, which was a magic trick. That kind of led to the creation of the Magic Lantern, which led to the creation of the moving film camera. And George Melies, who was a magician, making the first, you know, spook show movies, which were special effects dominated films with a lot of funny sight gags and stuff like that going on. So this is part of a long tradition that I'm in no way doing anything really different. I mean, I guess I have like a kind of a punk rock aesthetic to my thing, but it's been around for a long time in a bunch of different amalgamations. And can you paint a picture of what Professor Morte looks like? Well, when I designed Professor Morte, I wanted him to be like the ultimate horror host. So I took the fright wig from Goulardi and because I love Sid and Marty Croft and all that fun Saturday morning stuff. I wanted this to have that real edge to it. So I took like a witchy poo nose and our hosts need to have a painted on mustache. <laughs> so I took that from, you know, the ghoul or, you know, Sven Ghoulie's another guy that has a painted on mustache. It's just, you know, all these funny things. You're hearing Professor Morte, the ghost host with the most, telling you that this is going to scare the yell out of you. <laughs> so the spook show is not just you, though. Madeline, can you tell us about the rest of the cast of characters that make up the Silver Screen spook show? 
Yes, I'd love to. So I'm part of the female aspect where the go-go ghouls. We add to Professor Morte's story and provide uh, some of the comedic aspects of the shows. We also do some of the dancing and would be sort of the magician's assistant in the tricks that we perform. And each show is so uniquely different. We typically have a different assortment of cast members every time, which uh, Jim Stacy is another regular at the Silver Scream Spook Show. He quite Atlanta famous as well, like, like Shane. They have been doing this for a long time. And Professor Morte and Jim Stacy has several, several characters that he does that for each show, it's just a one-time show that you'll see once and never again. Yeah, the great thing about it is that we don't really know what's going to happen when we go on stage. That was another (laughs) aspect that I wanted to bring into this thing was a very haphazard improvisational approach. And that's gotten even better over the years because Madeline, you know, she's really serious about her stagecraft. She's a dad's garage girl. And so she brings a lot of a schooled approach to this improvisational acting that we have. (laughs) I don't know about that. (laughs) So it's very interesting because a lot of people, they prefer to come to the kids show because that's the time when everything happens for the first time. Like when we come up with the show, we have like a set list of things that are going to happen. And if there's a complicated illusion or a magic trick, of course we have to practice that and get it right. But all of the stage banter all of the interaction with the audience all of that is improvised on the spot so it gives it a the show a very vital feeling but also a feeling like it's going to go off the rails at any minute and uh that's a lot of fun when it does yeah that's kind of a beautiful thing so why has it always been important to y'all to have a kid show as well as an adult show so we're both really passionate about having community events that really can be shared with your family and to have experiences with your parents for films that your parents may have seen when they were kids and have that in an audience setting while being entertained with a stage show is sort of an amalgamation of everything that we love artistically, but also being able to form these experiences for children so that they can maybe enjoy seeing adults be silly on stage but also having a great time and there's also an educational aspect that Professor Morte will share about the film as far as creatively what may have been discovered at the time Ray Harryhausen how he did stop motion and wanting to inspire families to do creative things it's really something we're passionate about. And how does the adult show differ? Well, the adult show, what what happens with that is we always wanted to lean into the rock and roll aspect of it. You know, the whole punk rock crazy aspect of the spook show. And some of the jokes can get a little bawdy. I mean, we never go past a PG-13, I don't think, as far as the, the humor goes. But sometimes the crowd is interacting with us and they can get a little wilder at the night show. So we work on a lot of prompts from the audience sometimes, you know, and sometimes the hecklers give us a whole new direction to take the story into. It's it's just funny how it can happen. I still want to keep even the night show clean enough, you know, because years ago, 
I just decided I just, I, you know, and I do work on some scary movies that are rated R, but I prefer creature stuff in my special effects to like gory movies. I just like to be able to be accessible to a larger audience, you know, and like Madeline said, from the very beginning of this thing, it needed to be like kid friendly. I, I wanted this thing to be like Pee Wee's Playhouse meets the monsters. Uh, it's a great description. So what is the criteria for choosing the movie that goes along with the spook show? Well, it's got to be able to be shown to kids. Now, we have made some mistakes over the years. <laughs> I hadn't watched The Brain That Wouldn't Die in a couple <laughs> years, and I was kind of in shock as it was playing out on the kids' show, and there was a cat fight backstage at a strip club scene. Oh, no. Yeah, but it was, you know... <laughs> really, really youth-friendly. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> but no, it, was still, it still would be a movie that would be considered rated G by our standards. At the time, but at, at the time, yes. At the time, yes. there were not yes. ratings. But, and we showed a Godzilla movie that had been dubbed one time, and we didn't check it because I was just like, oh, it's a Godzilla movie, but there was some language in it. And after the show, I was just, I was more, I was mortified. <laughs> but um, I had some parents come up to me and they were like, oh, I could tell that you were like shaking in your shoes about how we were going to take this after show. But they were like, all those curse words are words that you would find in the Bible. So it wasn't that bad. And I was like, okay, I'll take it. Typically we try to do films that were a very entertaining, but be having something that is unique to that particular sort of genre where we do something that's a science fiction, a sword and sandal or a fantasy type experience and something with a classic monster that is just sort of regular vernacular as far as like Dracula or a werewolf or something of that nature. And that's kind of, we, we try to do this quarterly. So having films with those beats or feelings, that's the, the general way we pick them out. It's also based on, can we rent the film or is the studio going to allow us to do it? That's also part of it. Yeah, like when we show a Godzilla film, we really have to take a beating for that because the studio... The last time we showed a Godzilla movie, we had to pay Toho $1,000 each time we played it, plus half of the yeah. ticket price. Ooh. Sometimes it's a bit complicated to show your favorite movie. <laughs> so. But sometimes when we get lucky and we get a public domain film like House on Haunted Hill, then the theater gets more profits and so do we. Wow. Tell us about The Tingler, which is going to be this upcoming Spook Shows movie. The Tingler is widely considered the masterpiece of William Castle's Ovois. Like he was at, at his time, he was the king of the spook show. What he did was he took these gags like for um, House on Haunted Hill, it was filmed in Emergo. And what would happen is during the movie, there'd be a blackout, which is always something that happens in a spook show. During the show, there would be a blackout and ghosts would appear in the, in the movie theater and scary buddy and he would literally during the house on haunted hill during the blackout of the movie he would have a glow-in-the-dark skeleton parade above the crowd on a string and and with the tingler 
he would say that 3D is not good enough. This time you're going to feel the movie. So it was filmed in Percepto, which is a technique where you literally get shocked while you watch the movie. It may or may not have ever happened on a big scale. But the advertising was great. The advertising was always great in William Castle movies. And this goes along with the whole history of spook shows and magic on stage. Sometimes the advertising can be a little bit misleading. (laughs) And we have made it a badge of honor that our advertising is not misleading like this show we are we are promising that you will see the most ghosts that you will ever see in a movie theater we're going to break the ghost record that's right that's right um that's a bold statement shane it oh we we are going to break the all-time ghost record and uh last month we showed jason and the argonauts and we made a promise that we would have the most giant monster fights ever in a movie theater and we did that too there were 10 on stage giant monster battles so when we say we're going to do it we deliver it one of the greatest things that has happened over the 15 years that we've been doing the silver stream spook show we've had some old school spook show guys like philip morris he was a huge fan of the silver stream spook show and this guy he actually performed in a show with us once. And it was like one of the highlights of my life. This guy I looked up to since I was a a child. And he was like, this is so great. Like we have had some old school guys say, this is the best version of the spook show ever, because usually it was kind of like they would take advantage of the crowd and it was try to make a quick buck, you know? And they were like, you guys really delivered. Like Philip Mars was like, usually it was just me and some drunk guy I found earlier in the day to wear the gorilla suit. And that, that would be the whole show. I'd do some magic tricks on stage and we'd have ghosts on poles during the blackout. And hopefully the, the drunk guy in the gorilla suit wouldn't cause too much problems. But he was like, it was always like this crazy ramshackle affair. So when we got the thumbs up from Philip Morris, I knew that we were doing important, great work. Very cool. How does the stage show itself reflect the practical effects that were used in old films? For instance, for the Ray Harryhausen show, we will sometimes make a giant puppet and we'll show how stop motion animation is done by moving the actor click by click. Like Madeline said, we always like to have a little bit of an educational aspect to the show. I think that that's really important that you leave with something more than just, oh, wow, that was pretty neat. We saw some neat magic tricks and stuff. As crazy as the show is, we do put a lot of thought and a lot of work into the show. But, you know, we do have a rule that we have to make everything out of cardboard a couple days before the show. We can't work too hard on it because we want kids to see that, hey, we could, we could do this too. Yeah, that's really important. We do want to show that most of this is upcycled materials. Like we have a very strict low budget for these. I mean, it's apparent that we have a low budget for these shows, but that if children wanted to do something creative, you don't need to go spend a lot of money to create something really fun and film it yourself or put on a show yourself. And that is part of what we want to inspire. Yeah, I got lucky. I 
I grew up, I didn't have a lot of money, but my parents were artists and they were like obsessed with old classic monster movies and Godzilla movies. And as a kid, we had a Super 8 camera and my father and I, he taught me how to do stop motion and we would do these fun things. You know, my brother Sergey and I would put on little magic shows with costumes we made out of cardboard. And it was just something that I learned to do from my father who was just really good with you know taught me very early on how to make stuff out of trash pretty much yeah and i think that is part of as far as like bringing something to the stage from film as well we we just use a lot of fun visual tricks that sometimes play just perfectly yeah we've we've fooled some people pretty good but sometimes (laughs) to get a bigger laugh we will expose the trick like we did a thing a couple of years ago where we had a teleportation machine and there was a costume contest and a girl that was dressed as Alice in Wonderland won the contest. So we said, okay, you're going to get teleported. She walked into the teleportation machine and instantly she was in the balcony of the Plaza theater. And everybody was like, Oh my God, how did that happen? So she comes running down and I said, she's like, it's scary up there. I don't want to teleport me somewhere good this time. She goes back in the box Immediately, she's back in the balcony. And at this point, the audience is going, what is going on here? How are they doing that? Well, later on, the the story behind the show was there was a haunted mirror that was taking everybody away. And and there was going to be an evil Professor Morte that came out of the mirror. But during this process, we showed as the Alice in Wonderland girl went up to the mirror we kind of showed them that she was a twin and her twin was on the other side of this fake mirror and they were doing a little dance together. And then the whole place busted out laughing because we had them fooled. And then we kind of gave it up to them in this really fun way. Let them in on the joke. Yeah. I know you had to take a long break, maybe not just because of the pandemic, but tell us a little bit about the history and leaving and coming back. Oh, with the, with the Plaza Theater, yeah. it's gone through some changes, and we have been so lucky. Like, actually, I started the Silver Scream Spook Show in Coney Island in New York, and we had done some shows up there for about a, a year. And when my friends Johnny and Gail Ray bought the Plaza Theater, I immediately was like, oh, we got to do the Spook Show here in Atlanta. And all the time that they own the theater, we had a great run with the Spook Show. We had an amazing cast like John Waterhouse. He's one of the, you guys might be familiar with him. He's one of the great comedian, singer, actor, like you name it. This guy is a genius. He was like in the show for, for years. And we had some great blast off burlesque. It was a really great team. And we went through that. And then when the, the theater went through some changes and, we were kind of not able to work there. And now that Chris Escobar has the place and they're doing all this work with it, they welcomed us back and it's been awesome. And of course, as soon as we get back, then the pandemic hit and that was like two years off. But yeah, now we're back and we're going strong. Like after the last show, Chris actually called me up to congratulate me. He's like, these are like the old numbers. The attendance is back up. So hopefully people are coming back out and, bringing their kids to get out of the house and come do a fun show with their family. 
something really special happened when we rebooted that you didn't really think about that kids and families hadn't had many shared theater experiences together. And there were like two little kids when they came to the spook show at the beginning of the year, it was their first time in a movie theater ever. (laughs) And they were coming to see the spook show and see a movie for the first time with their they were little little kids it was just like and it was a god they were godzilla movie fanatics <laughs> oh. and we were showing a godzilla movie and we had godzilla and the smog monster come into the audience and all these parents are like wow this is their first time in a movie theater and they're gonna think it's like this all the time <laughs> now what have you done you know so that was really sweet yeah so there there were some i think great memories made for sure. So it's been really wonderful to be back and it's so much fun. We really, really enjoy it. It really means a lot to a lot of people, you know, like, you know, on the surface, people can say it's this silly show that these crazy improv actors put together. But we, after every time we do this show, we have people come up, families that are like, we have been coming here since our child was a child and now he's in college you know this is like this guy at the last show he's like i i do this thing every time where i'm introduced and i sneak through the audience in the dark and i scare (laughs) the yell out of somebody (laughs) and he was like i have been waiting for 15 years to be picked to get the yell scared out of me and you really got me so here's this guy he's 30 years old now you know or pushing 30 and he's been coming to the show with his parents since he was a teenager. Very cool. Well, one really fun question just to end on Shane as the resident Atlanta hero of all things monster. If you had to only watch one of these classic movies ever again, and then the other one would disappear forever. Would it be Godzilla or creature from the black lagoon? Oh, if I had a choice between either one of those, that's really tough. I know, right? That is really, really tough. <laughs> it's easy for me. But... It's easy for Madeline. She's going to say Creature from the Black Lagoon. Yeah, yeah. But, yes, um, for sure. I'm going to have to go with the Japanese version of Godzilla. I'm going to have to go with Gojira. It, is that the 1954 yes, film? Yes, the 54. Yeah. I mean, I remember being in New York watching that movie Godzilla King of the Monsters and I had built a little card table tent in the living room so I knew it was going to be scary but by the end of the movie when the when the Dr. Sarazawa has to sacrifice himself to save the world I remember just like tears running down my face watching this thing going like wow there's more going on here than just a monster movie you know I got really lucky the first couple movies I saw as a child were like King Kong and Godzilla, these these movies that had really deep subtext. So it, it left a mark on me. Shane Morden, a.k.a. Professor Morte, and Madeline Brumby, the creatives behind the Silver Scream Spook Show. Both the kids' show and the adult show are this Saturday, October 1st, at the historic Plaza Movie Theater. More information is on our website, wabe.org slash citylights. In a moment, we'll hear about the myriad of ways paper can be transformed into a work of art. Amplifying Atlanta, this is WABE. 
The field of mental health counseling is growing rapidly, and Richmond Graduate University can equip you with everything you need as a licensed professional counselor while integrating your faith into your clinical practice. Programs are offered in Atlanta, Chattanooga, and online. Apply today at richmont.edu. That's R-I-C-H-M-O-N-T dot E-D-U. You love free, and at Ameris Bank, so do we. That's why we're proud to offer worry-free, hassle-free Ameris Bank free checking. Manage your money your way with convenient access to digital, mobile, and telephone banking, all with no monthly service fee or minimum balance requirements. At Ameris Bank, we're with you. For more information or to open an account, visit our local bankers in person or online at amerisbank.com slash free checking. Other fees such as overdraft fees may apply. Ameris Bank, member FDIC, equal housing lender. This is City Lights on WABE. I'm Kim Drobes, in for Lois Reitzis, and it is great to have you along. From one piece of paper, a million ideas can be born, and Woodstock Art's new gallery exhibition, Paper Cuts, showcases the myriad of ways paper can be transformed into a work of art. Their show is on view through October 23rd at the Reeves House Visual Art Center, and City Lights host Lois Reitzis recently spoke with Nicole Lample, the visual arts director at Reeves House, along with one of Paper Cut's featured artists, Charles Clary. Lample began by explaining why she wanted to put together an exhibition that focuses on the medium of paper. Well, I think that that idea kind of came through seeing a lot of artworks made out of paper that had been in other exhibitions where it wasn't intentionally looking for artwork made out of paper. In our very, very first show, Reconstructing Home, we had a piece by Sarah Farrington where she did a whole recreation of furniture pieces, sort of a little vignette completely out of paper. And Griffin Carrick, who's also in the show, is in our women's work exhibit and she does paper quilling. So it kind of just, coalesced from all of these different pieces that I kept including in in the exhibit and it just seemed like it would make such an interesting exhibition to see what you can do with such a humble everyday medium and completely transform it into something else. And I actually even saw Charles's work at Art Fields which happens every spring up in Lake City, South Carolina. And that was where I first saw Charles's work. In fact, several of the artists are from my trip to that art fair and visiting and seeing all the different artists that focuses on regional, so Southeastern artists. You mentioned that paper is an inexpensive medium. How do you think that adds to the approachability of this exhibition? I think it definitely contributes quite a bit to the approachability. It's a material that probably almost everybody has in their home, whether that's scrap paper. We have an artist, Anna Grace Birch, who literally made a piece out of receipt paper, an artist who made things out of a book that she kind of sculpted, essentially. So I think it just shows people it's an everyday material that you can find in your house. And so it's a great way for people to realize that art isn't such a far reach And it's a great way to have people relate to the work in a way that you don't necessarily get with more complicated mediums. And in conjunction with the show, we're doing a bunch of workshops and classes on paper making and origami. So that really makes it incredibly approachable because then you get to actually learn the techniques as well. 
Charles, your paper sculptures almost look as if they were created by a 3D printer or laser cut, but they are all hand cut by you. Would you please tell us about your process? Yeah, so my process is very intuitive. You know, I looked at a lot of architectural model making when I was in grad school at the Savannah College of Art and Design uh, and really kind of fell in love with the meticulous nature of the material. And I get that a lot every time somebody sees my work in the very beginning, they immediately go to laser cut and I have to kind of shake my head and, and you know, their disbelief that it's all hand cut. And as they take a closer look, they can still see a few pencil lines here and there that kind of is reminiscent of the hand being very much part of the process. You know, I start with a single sheet of paper and cut an opening in that that paper and then let that inform the second layer. The second layer informs the third until I eventually run out of space, which is about 15 to 20 layers deep. And I think it's a very cathartic process. I really kind of get invested. It's very much almost like a, a mandala to some extent or, a you know, the Buddhist sand paintings or Navajo sand paintings. And I get really kind of invested in the process. How did you become involved? How did you get into making these paper towers and complex formations? Well, so it's a, it's a, not a complex story, but it's a happenstance, really. I was a MFA painting major when I was in grad school. And I received a residency in New York. So I went up there for three months to, to live and work in a studio by myself outside of academia. And um, they didn't have a wood shop where I was making my work. So I couldn't build stretcher panels or I couldn't build canvases for my paintings. And my paintings were, were trying to tell me something that they wanted to be more than what they were. And I had an internship at a, an amazing gallery in Brooklyn called Pierogi Gallery. And on my way home, I stopped in a paper store and lo and behold, Martha Stewart was making a, a ton of scrapbooking paper at that point in time. Oh, you are kidding I am, me. I am not. I, I always kind of get a little <laughs> bit of credit. <laughs> and there was a whole myriad of colors that, you know, my paintings were, were kind of speaking to. So I grabbed a bunch of that paper up and went back to the studio and just started cutting out these these kind of weird abstract forms and then you know once I really started getting into it I kind of upgraded my paper to a, a higher priced scrapbooking paper that actually has UV protectant built into it and has over 200 colors that I can pick and choose from and never really looked back. I mean, my my work's not 2D, it's not 3D, it's somewhere in between, so I call it two and a half D. <laughs> <laughs> and so it's it's been a love relationship with it since 2007 when I started creating the work that I'm that eventually evolved into what I make now. And your admirers have to be grateful that Martha Stewart wasn't teaching you how to make petty force that day. Exactly. <laughs> the perfect cream soup, whatever. <laughs> I read that music and movies inspire much of your work. In what ways do you include them in your pieces? 
So I was, I was really influenced when, when I started school for my BFA in painting, I was a double major. So I was a music and art major. And both of those took an exorbitant amount of time to get really good at. So I had to pick one that I was more passionate about. And it was a very difficult decision because I was a percussionist and a painting slash illustration major. And something about the visual arts just really kind of connected to me. But I couldn't let the musical components go. So the, the beginning work is all about this kind of visual translation and connection to computer-generated sound waves and how those look like viral colonies that you would see in a Petri dish and then how that kind of relates to archipelago land formations. So I really just kind of started rolling with it and they originally started out as action paintings. So I was playing the, the percussion with house paint and drumsticks onto a plastic surface and then letting that action kind of play out and then allowing it to dry. And then I could peel that paint up off the plastic and then use those as stencils for shapes within my paintings. And then those shapes stayed when all the other kind of processes kind of dipped out. And that's really kind of where I got a lot of my shapes from. That is fantastic. I mean, I've heard about mixed metaphor sometimes well you know musicians speak about color orchestral color the sound quality and visual artists speak about harmony symphony but you actually were creating your visual artwork with musical performance yeah, I mean, and it was kind of a private process. I didn't let necessarily anybody see it, but it really kind of started evolving the the shapes that I use in really kind of compelling ways. And then I started thinking about music as this virus, and then we as the listeners become carriers for for the musical notations, for the melodies. And then we would act as, you know, the carrier that would infect someone else. And then this love of music kind of like became this kind of epidemic and very kind of bright and vibrant and playful. And then that that kind of essence of virility kind of kept with the work as the ideation behind the work shifted and changed. So viral in that sense, virus is a good thing. It, it, it was. So like under a microscope or an electron microscope image, Viruses, bacteria, various diseases look quite beautiful if you remove the contextual aspect of the work or of the organism. And if you just look at it just from that visual standpoint, you know, there's something mesmerizing about those forms. Or even looking at a Petri dish to some extent is a kind of a beautiful experience. But then you add in the contextual component of it, and that's where it becomes something negative. So I try to focus a little bit more on the beauty of the organism rather than its eventual outcome. Yes. And you use such marvelous colors. I mean, your works are vibrant, vivid. No doubt that's intentional. It is. I, I like to say I'm a chromophile. <laughs> uh, you know, I, I'm, a, I'm a lover of color and the things that color can achieve. 
And I've always kind of been that way. I've always been drawn to the bright, garish, vibrant colors, whether that be neons or glitter paper or just these kind of blown out Nickelodeon-ish colors. There's just something so vibrant and playful about those colors. And even there's a translation to the electron microscope images where we're actually seeing these microbes under different wavelengths and they become these kind of neon-esque organisms. And, you know, that, that, that really resonates with me. Me too. I love color. Nicole, please tell us about a few of the other artists featured in this exhibition. I realize you can't tell us about everyone, but if you could give us some highlights of the other works on view in this show. Absolutely. It would be my pleasure. There are 15 artists in this show, so it would be a little bit much to cover everything, but I'll cover some of the, the main highlights. I would definitely love to talk a little bit about Jerusha Graham. She is an Atlanta-based artist who does these beautiful hand-cut images that are realistic and they're of figures and they have a lot to do with, uh, similar to what Charles was saying, you know, the that tedious repetitive action of cutting and how it kind of becomes this, takes on this aura of meditation but she really whittles down the essence of an image to these intimate and poetic observations about humanity. It's very socially minded in the way that she approaches it. There's also a really great piece by Maggie Kerrigan that I actually also saw at Art Fields in South Carolina. It's a piece where she has meticulously and to m- most people's eyes, perfectly cut pages out of, an, out of a book pasted them all together into one long scroll. And then that is suspended from the ceiling in various sort of heights coming down to the floor. And in the center of that is a pedestal with the book that it was originally from. And it has all of these little circles of paper, which were the the circles that had been punched out of the sort of paper streamers. And what's so interesting about this is It's a book about when the U.S. government was trying to assimilate Native American children by removing them from their homes and sending them to boarding schools. So the the boarding schools were known for pretty atrocious abuse, neglect, and even malnutrition. And it was really about erasing their culture in a lot of ways, in a a way to encourage assimilation. But the book that she uses is related to that whole topic. It's about that topic. It's called The Tender Land. And it's a fictional story that illustrates the plight of the Native American children who endured life in these schools. And those punched holes in the pages of the paper are actually intended to illustrate the lost children and the lost generations due to the boarding school program. And those are reassembled inside the empty book cover and it's slightly reminiscent of like a a mass grave so that was a very heavy hitting piece and then there's a beautiful I mean it's it's sort of astonishing that this is made out of paper by Michael Villicat he creates these paper sculptures that you could never ever imagine were were made out of paper I was so excited to to see these in person because I'd only seen them virtually since he is based in Wisconsin. 
but he creates these very intricate structures that are just layers and layers of paper to the point where it's jutting off the wall by, I'd say about eight to 10 inches. And they also do have sort of like a mandala effect, also similar to what Charles was saying, which seems to be sort of a, a consistent theme running through a lot of the work is this idea that the intricacy naturally leads to a state of meditation, but it is so incredibly detailed and intricate. And it's it's hard to, to explain without seeing it in person, but they look like these sort of little mechanical structures or little mechanical universes in, in some way. And then Karen Margolis is a New York-based artist. These ones were really beautiful. Again, so amazing to, to see them in person after seeing them online because they are sheets of paper that she has burned holes into. And from that substrate, she's using paint, but also collaged pieces of maps and threads. So she sews a lot of these pieces all together. And it also has a very cellular, organic feeling similar to Charles. And so there are some themes and some consistency that that comes from all of these pieces, even they even though they seem um, at first so completely disparate. And then Hazel Sebastian Glass does a, I wouldn't say similar, but uses um, a similar technique, hand cutting the paper, but she does these very tiny, precious pieces, usually only like five by seven inches. And they serve as these little windows into sort of this, this other magical world that she imagines. And there can be up to like 101 layers of paper. Oh my. <laughs> so it, it gets very, very detailed, but she's also creating more figurative and, and more, I don't want to say realistic imagery, but buildings and mountain ranges and things that are a little more tangible. Mm. Can you tell us about some of the special events, workshops coming up in October? Absolutely. So it's a big part of Reeves House and Woodstock Arts' mission to engage the community, provide education, and provide various avenues for the community to participate in. So we had an event where we invited a local author who taught students blackout poetry, which was something I had never heard of. It's a way of creating poetry by taking something that already exists, a page from a book, and you black out with a Sharpie all the words that you select and leave only a select few. And it kind of creates this very beautiful poem, which I think is another way that it starts to feel a little more approachable because you don't have to start from scratch. You don't have to have a blank piece of paper even to begin with. Some of the other events we have happening in October, we have a paper making class, one for kids and then a separate one for adults. One of those is on the 15th, October 15th. And we have jazz night that happens on the last Friday of every month where we invite a local jazz trio. And we've also started featuring local artists to create the centerpieces for each table. And then they're also there to sell their, their artwork if anybody's interested. And then we also have art on the spot, which is always the third Friday of every month. And that's where we invite three local artists to set up outside on the balcony 
or the porch rather, and work on a piece so people get to see the creative process in action and see that process of going from a completely blank canvas to a really beautiful painting. And then we sell raffle tickets. And at the end of the night, three people get to go home with one of those artworks that they saw created right in front of their eyes. So we have a bunch of recurring events that are also really interesting and, and provide different ways to engage with the art. Visual arts director Nicole Lample and artist Charles Clary, speaking with City Lights host Lois Reitzis. Paper Cuts is on view at the Reeves House Visual Arts Center in Woodstock through October 23rd. More information is on our website, wabe.org slash citylights. Coming up, our series of local artists in their own words, speaking of the arts, today featuring Thomas Turner. Amplifying Atlanta, this is 90.1 WABE. This is City Lights on WABE. I'm Kim Drobes, in for Lois Wrightsis. Thank you for being here. It's time now for our series, Speaking of the Arts, where we get to hear from local artists in their own words. Hi, my name is Thomas Turner. I like to think that I create surrealistic paintings that act as windows into another realm where animals and nature and inanimate objects all come together to tell a story through symbolism. So you could see chandeliers turning into bouquet of flowers or a swan with a tree growing off of her back or an egg hatching an antler that turns into a flower with a bee coming to pollinate it. Overall, I would say the work represents interconnectedness in the universe with us all being a part of this moment in time whirling around in space. I never thought of myself as an artist until my early 20s. Before that, I was always creating art, but it was more of just something I didn't even realize I was doing. My earliest memory, I can think back to being maybe two or three years old and going into my playroom and getting out a light bright and staying up late at night when I was supposed to be sleeping, creating pictures on that. And then that goes through middle school, high school, doodling and sketchbooks all the way up until, boom, I got to college and realized like, oh my goodness, I've been doing this all along and this is what I want to do now. I'm heavily inspired by photography of animals and nature, as well as the idea that if humans were not around, then nature would just take back over and sort of grow over everything. And you can kind of see that happening in my work, especially when trees are growing on the backs of animals and there's moss everywhere and things like that. So uh, I like to think of a world with less of a human footprint. I choose to call Atlanta home because I just love how green it is here. I mean, we have so many parks, so many trails, trees everywhere. So I'm heavily inspired by that. And then, you know, just the art scene here in Atlanta has really thrived and actually brought me up. You know, I came up through ABV Gallery, stands for a better view 
uh, headed by Greg Mike, and they just opened my eyes to a whole new world that I knew that existed. I just was never a part of until, you know, they sort of opened the door for me. So, yeah, Atlanta, Atlanta is home. I have murals all over the city as well as outside the city and around the country too. So if any of y'all get out there, you know, go check that out. You can see my work on my website at thomasturnerart.com and on Instagram at thomasturner underscore tt. And yeah, I really appreciate all the support that Atlanta has given me and I want to see the city keep thriving. So I'm going to, I'm going to keep giving back. Thomas Turner and our series, Speaking of the Arts. More information about Turner's work is on our website, wabe.org. You've been listening to City Lights, our daily exploration of arts and culture. Tomorrow at 11 a.m., Emmy Award-winning actor, writer, and director Coleman Domingo tells us about his new short films, New Moon and North Star. Both are being screened as part of the Out on Film Festival. If you missed part of today's show, you could catch up on our website where you'll find a complete archive of our previously aired stories. City Lights executive producer and host is Lois Reitzes. Our producers are Summer Evans and Janine Etter, and our engineer is Shelley Canady. I'm senior producer Kim Droves, and we want you to connect with City Lights on social media. We are at WABE City Lights on both Facebook and Instagram, and you can follow Lois on Twitter at L-O-I-S-R-E-I-T-Z-E-S. Thank you for listening to WABE Atlanta. Hi, it's Terry Gross, the host of Fresh Air. We bring you in-depth, long-form interviews with actors, directors, musicians, authors, journalists, and more. Listen to our Peabody Award-winning Fresh Air podcast from WHYY and NPR. The world is full of mysteries. Are ghosts real? Is that yogurt expired? Hey, the unknown can be scary. But when you donate to WABE, you know where your money is going. Your gift supports the journalism that keeps you informed and the programs that pull back the curtain on complicated stories. Help us make the world less mysterious. Become a member now. Go online to wabe.org slash donate and thanks.